grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and you are good. Lord, you are present with us tonight. Lord, rebuke distraction. Open up the minds of and the hearts of everyone, Lord, who is hearing your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for Elevate. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to serve you. And I pray, Lord, that you're going to give us a fresh appreciation and a reverence for your word that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for the many many men and women of God who gave their lives for us to have it. We love you, Lord, and we give this completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are jumping into week three of Book of Books, How We Got the Bible, the origins of the Bible. We're looking at questions like, who wrote the Bible? How is it put together? Why these books and not others? And how is it preserved through the millennia? And also, can we trust it? Do we trust that we have the right books? I want to begin with the understanding that the Bible has two purposes. The first purpose is that it glorifies God. The more we dig into scriptures, the more we see how it it connects, how it's this beautiful masterpiece of a puzzle that all the pieces, though written by different people at different time periods in different countries, work together to give us a singular, clear revelation of who God is. So the first purpose is that it glorifies God. Second, it's for us to know Him. And as John makes clear in the book of John, is that knowing God is having salvation. Whenever we talk about a canon, a canon was a reed or a stick that was cut to a certain length. And whenever construction workers would build a house or a temple or something like that, they would use this canon, this reed, as a measuring stick, as the standard for the entire building project. Whenever we talk about about a Christian canon, we're referring to the list of books which Orthodox Christianity recognizes as the words of God. This collection of books is the ruler, the standard of our faith. Now, unlike the Old Testament, where the Catholics and the Protestants and the Eastern Orthodox have different lists of Old Testament books, all Christian faiths agree on the 27 books of the New Testament. And we stand on the verse of 1 Peter chapter 1, 20-21, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now this process of canonization was slow, organic, and it was handled with great scrutiny. The church didn't give or assign authority to certain books. It recognized the authority that was already on them as God's word. Jesus is speaking in John 14 when he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. This is the promise that we as Christians stand on. Now, whenever we're talking about the development of the New Testament, it is the 27 New Testament books 
They were originally written in Greek by Jesus' disciples in a 50-year span between A.D. 45 and A.D. 95. They were written on papyrus, which is a plant that's cut into strips and pressed into sheets that are similar to paper. Uh, They use it like writing material, and they rolled it into a scroll. No later than the early 100s, Christians began to copy their writings onto flat sheets of papyrus and sewed them together between two pieces of wood like a book with covers. This was called a codex, or multiple would be called a codices. Now, it's really unfortunate that they use papyrus because, just like paper, it deteriorates over time, especially in humid climates like Israel. In fact, some of the oldest texts that we have discovered were in Egypt because it has that dry, heat climate. Now, this is one of the two reasons that the original letters, the original autographs of the apostles are gone. The second reason is because of a persecution by Diocletian in 303 AD against Christianity. And in that persecution, he sought to round up and destroy all Christian writings. So sadly, only fragments of the earliest copies have been found. We do, however, because in the mid-300s, Scripture started being copied from papyrus onto fine animal skins called parchments. Now, parchments last much, much longer. And because of that, we actually have two complete Bibles from the mid to late 300s still in existence. They're called the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, as we are looking towards the New Testament canon, we have to ask a very real question, because just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Old Testament canon and why they closed it as Scripture and not to be added to. Does the Old Testament leave room for more Scripture to be added? 600 years before Jesus, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 prophesied that God was going to bring a new covenant, one that would finally deal with the human heart and all those animal sacrifices would no longer be necessary. Now, with the giving of a new covenant, it naturally follows that a new proclamation for the world at large, for Israel, would make room for a new collection of scriptures that are going to complement the Old Covenant, complementing the books of the Old Testament. Now, we have to accept or believe or come up against the idea that if when Jesus spoke, God was speaking, then his teachings were authoritative scripture on par with the Old Testament. I want to say that one more time. If when Jesus spoke, God was speaking, his teachings were scripture. So we have Jesus who's traveling from town to town, giving sermons, performing miracles, answering questions, and teaching everyone who came to him. He spoke boldly with authority as if he himself was God, but then he did things that only God could do. He foretold his death, and according to the will of God, he died on a Roman cross, resurrected from the grave, and ascended. But this death, resurrection, and ascension came to his apostles as shockingly shockingly abrupt. But they remembered their assignment. Jesus had told them in John 14 that the Holy Spirit was going to teach them and help them remember everything that Jesus taught. Jesus went on in Matthew 28 before he ascended saying, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This was the Apostles' commission, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is exactly what they did. 
They went out, they remembered the words of Jesus, they taught the words of Jesus, and they gave testimony as eyewitnesses to his life, death, and resurrection. Listen to this sermon from Peter in Acts chapter 10. Peter says this, We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God. And so the apostles did just that. They replicated what Jesus did. They traveled, they taught, they founded Christian communities. They even performed miracles. They wrote letters to those churches, instructing them, correcting, and encouraging. And whenever they received letters from those churches, they would respond with letters, answering their questions and giving correction. This correspondence between the churches and the disciples, those letters are what are going to become our New Testament. Listen to this in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers and sisters, Paul is writing, and he says this, Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. The churches from the very beginning recognized the authority given to the apostles to deliver God's word. So as they wrote letters and biographies about Jesus, these churches would add those letters to their collection of Jewish scriptures, holding them as the same regard. Each church desired to have not only the letters addressed to itself, but they wanted all the copies that they could collect of the writings given to other churches. In fact, Paul's earliest letters to those churches that he founded were already circulating by A.D. 50. And the first biography of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, was written in the mid-50s. Mark is almost undoubtedly actually Peter's gospel, and many of the early church fathers attest to that. Matthew wrote soon after, probably referencing Mark and expanding on it with his own memories. Then Luke, Paul's traveling companion, sat down and compiled as thorough of a biography as he could, leaning heavily on Mark. Luke would have known, because of Luke traveling with Paul, he would have known the apostles. He would have even known Mary, Jesus' mother, very well. She lived with John in Ephesus, which was a frequent stop of Paul and Luke. Maybe this is why Luke includes Mary's perspective in Jesus' birth story. Listen to how Luke opens his gospel. Luke 1, 1 through 4. In as many, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You see, Luke was writing his gospel with the very purpose of explaining the eyewitness testimonies for for the sake of the salvation of Theophilus. And that is what Luke is hoping to do for us. A majority of the New Testament books were written and circulating already by the late 50s and early 60s. But tragedy struck, and it came in the form of heavy persecution, beginning in A.D. 64 by Nero in Rome. It was during this season of persecution that Peter and Paul were both martyred. The apostles and those close associates of Jesus were dying off quickly, left and right, 
being martyred. And because of this, their writings, their letters, and copies of their writings started becoming highly cherished and sought after by the churches. Paul's letters to the churches were probably already being compiled and circulating as a collection, a corpus, by A.D. 85. All those scattered letters of Paul had been collected and were now moving together as a group. Most of the New Testament writers had been martyred by the late 70s. The last books of the New Testament to be written were by John, whom church tradition actually records as having been boiled in oil and miraculously survived. He was the only apostle who would not be martyred. He wrote his letters and his gospel between 70 AD and 90 AD, and the book of Revelation while he was exiled on the island of Patmos around 95 AD. Revelation was the last book written by an apostle, and having this sort of foreshadowing apocalyptic tone made it the perfect close to the New Testament. So should we consider the apostles' writings to be scripture on par with the Old Testament? It seems apparent that while the apostles were living, and even under the supervision of the apostles who were still alive, collections of their writing were being compiled and treated as authoritative scripture. So if at any point the writings were lies or they weren't supposed to be taken as scripture, the living apostles could censor that and make sure that that was corrected. But they didn't. In fact, they attested to themselves as writing scripture. Now, I've got to make it clear. This is not, hey, these are my ideas and I'm saying they're right because of my ideas. These are the apostles saying, no, what I'm writing is scripture because I'm quoting Jesus. I'm making it clear that these are the teachings of Jesus. Therefore, what I'm writing you is Scripture. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In 2 Thessalonians, he claims God's salvation comes through his and the other apostles' teachings. First Peter, or Peter in 2 Peter, asks that his, his writings remain in churches as scripture. And then John in the book of Revelation makes the clearest claim that what he's writing is divine revelation from God. Further, the apostles verify each other, not Again, because they were buddies, but because they were recognizing that what the other apostle is writing are Jesus' teachings. Paul in 1 Corinthians quotes the Gospel's account of the Last Supper. He also quotes things of Jesus from the Gospels often. And Peter references the Gospel's account of Jesus' transfiguration. And then we get this cool little snippet of Peter recognizing Paul's writing as Scripture. 2 Peter 2, 15-16 Peter writes this, and he's talking about Paul. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. So there's a recognition of Paul's letters circulating. When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. So he's recognizing that Paul's writings are to be compared with other scripture. Now, as we come to the close of the first century, there is no canon. There is no list of books. They're circulating wildly and widely. 
The, the apostles are writing to churches in very different places. And, and the letters and these biographies of Jesus are taking hold and finding popularity in different circles for two reasons. One, because communication and travel was slow and arduous. The churches were very far apart and a trip of several hours today would take months or even years back then. Plus, copies of their writings had to be written by hand, which was slow and hard work. The second reason, that there was no semblance of a canon, there was no opportunity for the churches to get together and hammer this out, was because of the heavy persecution that was going on. Churches had to gather in secret. They had to copy the, the writings of the apostles in secret. And although the severity of the persecution changed with each new emperor, Full religious freedom isn't going to come until Emperor Constantine in 313, which is 200 years later. On top of all these difficulties, other books and letters are are being written, and these books and letters are actually forging the names of the dead apostles to try to give them popularity. Now, with the distance, the persecution, the lack of communication, and all these imposter books, it's easy to understand why each church's collection of letters and writings would vary from one to another. You couldn't simply put out like a text blast to the church leaders saying, hey, let's gather next weekend. Grab whatever letters you have and we'll, you know, compare notes and iron out a canon. No, the process is going to take time. It's going to take a while before they reach uniformity among the Christian churches. So next week we're going to talk about how this canon came together with all this opposition. If you want to learn more about uh, what we're discussing, go and research some of the early church fathers. Get to know maybe some of the apocryphal books that tried to work their way into the canon. Now before we wrap tonight, I want to recap for a minute on Jesus's commission, his directive to his apostles. It was very clear. They were to remember his words and they were to teach him. Remember his words and to teach them. There's a beautiful story of a guy named Bob and he had a gas station back in the day, back in uh, the golden era where when you pulled up to a gas station, an attendant would come out and pump gas for you and they'd clean off your windshield and they'd check the air in your tires and, and, and the fluids in your engine. And Bob was that gas station attendant. He ran a gas station. And you know what? Because of Bob's excellence, his gas station became kind of the epicenter of where people wanted to be. Sometimes there would be cars lined up, six or seven at each of his pumps, waiting to be met with and have a conversation with Bob. And Bob loved Jesus. And that excellence came out in all he did. And you know what? Bob didn't have any posters or banners or Christian fishes. There was no sign that said, come meet Bob and meet Jesus. It was Bob and his humble conversation and the excellence of his work that people were drawn and attracted to. And it's reported about Bob that many people gave their lives to Jesus right there at the gas pump because of Bob. You see, Bob blended his work with his commission from Jesus. Bob took every opportunity to remember the words of Jesus and teach them. He didn't need a pulpit. He didn't need a stage. He didn't need a podcast. Bob saw 
his discipleship and his calling from the Lord fulfilled in pumping gas and cleaning windows. Oh man, may we be more like Bob, that wherever we are, we feel the commission, we feel the weight and the leading of the Holy Spirit to remember the words of Jesus and to teach them, to make them clear, to boldly and lovingly share who our Jesus was. All right, recap. If Jesus was God, then what he taught is authoritative scripture. After his ascension, his apostles continued his work by spreading his teachings, giving testimonies as eyewitnesses, and founding churches. They wrote letters to the churches they founded, including several biographies. As those who were trained by Jesus, the apostles' teachings were considered to have the same authority, and copies of their works circulated. Within a span of 20 to 30 years, most of those apostles were martyred. Each church sought to have the collections of the apostles' writings for teaching, and they gathered all they could get their hands on. Because of the distant regions the churches were in, communication was slow, and there was lots of religious persecution. So those books would actually vary from church to church. And those churches taught whatever they had, but there needed to be a consensus. So I've got two challenges for you tonight. The first one, tonight... Have a Bible study and select one single verse. One verse and memorize it. Internalize it. Quote it to yourself all day tomorrow. Let this be a learning from Jesus. And then do not go to bed tomorrow night until you have shared what that verse means to you with someone else. Take the calling. Let's be like Jesus. Let us fulfill what he's called us to do, to remember his words and to teach them. Heavenly Father, you are the one who empowers us to fulfill your words. Thank you, Lord, for what the apostles did in remembering your words and writing them down so we could know you. We could have salvation through the power of your word. Thank you for those who gave their lives to preserve it. Oh, Lord, that we would give you worship with all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions. And Lord, I pray that you will lay it on every heart within the sound of my voice to study your word and to look for every opportunity to share your love with the people around us, to remember and to teach. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for for your people, for your church and your word. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.